from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Good morning and welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics. Come to you live from the Wharton School, Huntsman Hall. Sirius XM Business Radio Studio on the Locust Walk on a balmy October, late October morning. Balmy, increasingly dark. Winter is around the corner. October morning. This is Cade Massey hosting this morning with my buddy Eric Bradlow. Good morning, Eric. Hey, good morning, Cade. Glad to be here. Glad, glad you're here as well. Our our collaborators, Audie and Shane, are out doing Audie and Shane things this morning, but we're going to be here for the next two hours. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. To talk sports analytics, you can talk sports analytics with us. We'd love you to give us a ring. One eight four four Wharton. Matty Dots, producer boss man Matty Dots over there on the phone waiting for your phone call. One eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us. Email's a fine way to reach us. Email address is businessradio at sirusxm.com. Businessradio at sirusxm.com. You can do that. One of the times, if you're listening, you know, on a Saturday and hearing us because we're being replayed, good way to reach out. But you can also do it in the middle of the show. If you'd rather write than call, drop us an email. We do pick those up and answer them real time. You can follow us. We are in the Twitter's land, in Twitter world up there at, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is a way to follow us during the week. We're tweeting and following people in the world of sports analytics. We're going to be here for a little while. We usually have our um, guests um, bottom of this hour and the top of next hour, we've got Rick Peterson in here to talk baseball. We have a sports journalist, one of the great sports journalists out there, young, quant-oriented from the Washington Post, going to join us as well, Mr. Greenberg. And, uh, but we've got open lines for the first half hour. Eric, I, I know, I'm sure I know what's on your mind on the world of sports, and I'm curious what's cut your eye. Well, Actually, this is one of those weeks I'm actually really ready to dive right into college football. You don't want to talk baseball anymore? I, well, I think we have an obligation to our listeners here on Morton Moneyball to talk a little bit of baseball. Why don't you want to talk baseball, Larry? Are you still hurting? Is, are you not recovered yet? Well, it, it depends what you mean by recovered. So let me, well, let me, we'll get to last night's game in just a second. Um, you know, obviously all our listeners, I hope, know that the Yankees were up 3-2. to two. Um, according to the Bradlow metric, of course, of momentum, they were up even more than three to two because they had lost two straight and then won three straight. Yeah. So, you know, I was trying to think, you know, is there any chance the Yankees now, of course, the games were going back to Houston. Is there any chance the Yankees weren't 75-25 to win the series up 3-2? Because, you know, just just a quick stats for everyone out there. The only path that the Yankees lose the series, which is what happened, is loss-loss. Mm-hmm. Let's assume each game is 50%. Let's just assume that for a second. A half times a half is a quarter. That's the odds the Astros win. The rest of the probability goes to the Yankees. The Yankees are at .75. Under the Bradlow theory of momentum, the Yankees may have even been greater than a half in Game 6. you got to offset it with home field. you got to offset it with home field. But I'm saying at one yeah. could make an argument sure. at worst the Yankees Ballpark. were... Sure. You know, ballpark seventy five twenty five. Of course, seventy five twenty five events happen for the twenty five a quarter of the time, <laughs> so they happen quite frequently. Yeah, it was a little bit disappointing. Um, I guess the part that you know I've always said this too, and this we showed this last night. Which would you rather have, great pitching, or great hitting? 
I'm so colored by last night. Well, no, no. But even how many runs did the Yankees score in the last two games against Houston? I don't remember if the total was one run or two runs. But great pitching in the postseason beats great hitting. It's happened every year. It always happens every year. It's a, it's especially interesting to say that after watching what New York did to Houston in, while while they had him in New York, because that you you know going back to that the, you know the Astros were up four zero in game five. Game four. Game that's four. the game I was at. Late, late game seventh inning up four nothing, and then New York just erupts and they can't they can't get an out, and it's just extra base hit after extra base hit. But against the relief pitching, yeah. So there's no, I don't think anybody doubts if the Yankees were to get a lead in one of those games, nothing certain. You know, Mariano Rivera blew a game in the 2001 World Series that could have won us the World Series against the Diamondbacks, but the Yankees had superior a bullpen. No one's going to doubt that. The starting pitching of the Astros was amazing in the last two games. I mean, the vaunted Yankees lineup, yes, young teams, I think they scored one or two runs total in 18 innings. That's impressive. Mm -hmm. And so that was disappointing to me. But again, great pitching beats great hitting. And you, you have to feel good. I mean, the Yan no one expected the Yankees to go that deep this year. No, but they're you built, know it They're built for work. the future. It, I know, but it, to me, maybe, maybe you, know, you study this type of psychology more than I do. I'm happy to go with that. Until we're up three to two, yeah. <laughs> and then we're one game away from the World Series. Now, yeah. if you had said we had made the World Series, and you know what, we lost, I'll make it up four one, four two to the Dodgers. I'd have been ecstatic. Uh -huh. But we were close to the World Series, yeah. and it seemed like close but very far. Like we were never really in either of those last, like those last two games. It just didn't go the Yankees' it's, way. It's amazing. It's amazing how much it flipped. How dominant the Yankees were for those last game and a half, up two two and a half games up north, and then it just went the other way. It also, Houston. you know, yeah, it also makes you start to question. I don't question this because the data actually answers this question extremely well. Like, could Houston have had more of a home field advantage than we want to kind of give? Like, is there an? I know you think about this a little bit in the Massey Peabody system. How much variation is there in home field advantage? So maybe Houston was one of those teams that has a massive home field. Like we tend to say it's three points. Well, are some teams five points and some teams one point? It's a great question, and people have looked at it, and we have looked at it. I mean, Rufus, when he's betting, you know, is, is always looking for a little bit of an edge here and there, and he's he's looked pretty hard at home field. And the, the bottom line is that some years, here's the thing, Eric, you run that, you run those tests, and you look for how that's distributed, and some years. Some teams turn out to have a much bigger home advantage than, than other teams do. But it's not persistent. It's wildly well, not persistent so across years. So that's a really, really important statistical point that you're making, which is, is there a distribution of home field advantage that isn't three points with standard deviation, let's say in football, standard deviation zero? Yes, there is a deviation. But the real question people would ask, when people say home field advantage, people would love to say, oh, the Packers every year are at five, and I'll make this up. The Jets or the Giants, because they barely play in their own stadium, are at one. And you're saying is, of course there's variation, but not persistent variation, mm -hmm. which means it's hard to capitalize on in any systematic way. Yeah, it's, and it's hard to know whether it's real. And um, it definitely undermines some of the stories about parks that are, you know, notoriously hard to play in. Either way, there was no joy in, well, the Yankees, you know, exceeded what we thought they were going to do. Not up 3-2, um, having won three straight <laughs> games. There's no joy in that. So what did you think about last night's game? So well, Do Do Dodgers win 3-1. I'm not sure a base runner reached second other than when trotting around the base after a, a home run. 
Yeah, um, I think there might have been one instance where I thought I saw. I, you know, I only watched. I was watching the game maybe. on and off. Sure, maybe. there might have been one instance where they had first and second. Maybe. I mean, the Dodgers kept on getting people on first, and the, and the Astros kept on turning double plays, and the Astros got nothing. The Astros, Kershaw just completely shut down the Astros. Yeah. So while I'm not a Dodger fan, obviously growing up a Yankee fan, I was pleased with the way the number of the World Series went. Not the 1981, but the 1970. You know, whatever 77 <laughs> one went. Um, was there only one? It feels like there were about three Dodgers. Well, no, Yankees we we did. We played them. Then. Certainly, we played them in 1980 and lost. Um, we played them. I forget. Was that the, Venezuela? Valenzuela? That was. Mm-hmm. That was the Valenzuela year. Um, and then seventy. I forget if it was seventy-seven or seventy-eight. Who we played them? So we played. But we which pl- was the Reggie Jackson, Mister October Legend Begins? I'm going to say that's seventy-seven. Oh, you're right, because that was certainly the World Series where Reggie Jackson hit three ho- in Game Six. Three home runs on literally three pitches, three swings off three different pitchers. So that was the game that won the Yankees the World Series. I just forget if it was 77 or 78, but it was three. I'll tell you what my lasting memory will be. I think uh, Clayton Kershaw, I think the data supports this, is one of probably the top 10 pitchers in the last 50 years. The data data suggests that. I mean, on every— What data did he go to for that, by the way? Oh, well, there's lots of things. There's, you know, wins above replacement— uh, Which do you find most compelling for pitchers? I think earned run average is actually pretty good for pitchers. Is that I, right? I think earned run average is pretty good. I mean, I understand there's defensive stats that come in there. I think also another one that's really has, has really grown recently for me is batting average on balls in play. Mm-hmm. You know, so when the person and what percentage of balls even get in play. Mm-hmm. You know, so Kershaw is amazing at you know just balls not getting in play. Mm-hmm. Also, I think if it's, he's not the top, he's in, certainly in the top three of all time of strikeout to walk ratio. You may remember there was a year recently where I think he may have struck out 300 and walked 10. It was some number like that. What is, what is an average strikeout to walk ratio for a starting pitcher? I think good starting pitchers are kind of in a, you know, if you have a one and a half to two ratio, oh my that's God. considered acceptable. And certainly if you're two to one, three to one, there was a season, I'm pretty sure he was something like 25 or 30 to one. And that if you look at last night's game, you know the stats of last night's game? 11 strikeouts, zero walks. And it was the, apparently it was the first, you know, it was the most tied for the most strikeouts without any walks in a World Series game ever. Okay. I All think right. it was Don Newcomb, that's as a matter of fact. That's I think a decent I, outing. Jeez. So I actually, my lasting memory isn't, I don't care actually if the Dodgers win. And some people say, well, you want the Dodgers to beat the Astros because the Astros no, I'm not into that. I don't care about that. I wanted Clayton Kershaw to get the respect he's due, and if he had another bad postseason outing, although oh, this year he's three and zero in the postseason, okay. I just want the guy's postseason record to match his regular season greatness. And because and the person, other person, we're, look, we're going to talk to Rick Peterson at eight thirty. That I think about is Greg Maddox. If you look at Greg Maddox, you would agree one of the top ten pitchers of the last fifty years. Born in San Angelo, Texas. Ah, there we go. But you would agree, one of the top 10 pitchers of the last 50 sure, years. Absolutely. 355 no career wins. Some people may even argue statistically even greater than top 10. He had a losing, I think, postseason yeah. record. Yeah. And so, and not a great ERA. So the question becomes, are there, and let me tell you why I thought about it last night. Which would you rather be? Clayton Kershaw, a guy who's a great pitcher, who can throw 95-96, or Dallas Keuchel for the Astros, who's a great pitcher, who can throw 89 or 90. And it made me think that last night. If I miss, I'd rather the ball be at 95 than at 89. Mm -hmm. And that's what essentially happened in the game. I was watching. There were times where Kershaw didn't hit his spots. Okay, but the ball's 95, 96 with Mm -hmm. movement. Mm -hmm. Keiko misses his spot. 
and Justin Turner hits an 89-mile-an-hour ball that's right over the middle of the plate. He hits it 420 feet. I'd yeah. rather, you know, speed, you know, Pitching speed isn't everything, but if you make a mistake, I'd rather the ball be fast. Well, obviously, holding it all equal, that would be the case. But, of course, you're going to make more mistakes if you're throwing fast. On average, there's less control. There has to be some trade-off there. And you're Absolutely. saying you'll, you'll take that trade-off. Eric, tell me this. That apparently, these batters hadn't often faced these pitchers. There's just not much history between these particular throwers and the guys who are at the plate. How much difference does that make? We know within a game. That by the time the batting order comes around the third time, batting averages kick up. Absolutely. What about what about a lifetime? Like these, some of these guys probably faced Kershaw for the first. They did many of them for the first time in their life. They've heard about him. They've watched him. He's a legend, and they go out and face him for the first time. What do we know about the difference over a lifetime as a as a batter has more reps against a pitcher? Yeah, it's a quick question. I think this is an area where analytics has changed things a lot. Um, I always used to give the advantage to the batter, so the batter facing a pitcher the second time through a lineup, third time, or let's even say, as you're pointing out, uh, Caden, a career, 15th, 20th time you faced it. I said, wow, the advantage is definitely to the hitter. The problem is, you know, like I'm watching at times, like part of last night I couldn't be in front of the TV. I'm watching the game on GameCast on my phone. And I thought there, you had like 17 TVs in your I house. know, but I wasn't in front of a TV. I was doing something else. But I'm still watching on my phone. I don't want to know what you're doing while you're watching GameCast. Well, whatever. I'm doing something. I'm watching on GameCast. And... It literally is showing on GameCast, like, it's showing a, you know, a 6 4 by 4 box where it's showing the batter's batting average on pitches in each of these 16 zones of the home plate, if you want. And I'm sure... Before, over a season or over a lifetime. Yeah, over a season. Okay. And, oh, yeah, it's a good point, over a season. And I'm sure Clayton Kershaw has that data. I'm sure Dallas Keuchel has it. I'm yeah. sure the pitching coaches have that data. So I think analytics has kind of what I'll call leveled the competitive advantage. I thought it was more about hitter adjustments, like historically. Yeah. And now I think pitchers know, you know, throw to these two zones. And you know what? The odds are in your favor. Okay. And, of course, then, of course, you get into game theory. You know, if, yeah. the, if I'm the batter and the pitcher knows where my weak zones are, then if I look for a ball in that zone, could I have a greater advantage? And that's where I love – that's kind of like the psychology of the game, which is we teach this in our classes – even if you have an advantage, you kind of have to do a little bit of randomization because if, if the pit, batter knows the pitch is coming to that weak zone, even if they're weak at it, if they know that's where to look, that's a huge advantage to the batter. I, I, that, that all makes good sense. I, I, I think it's an empirical question, ultimately, how batters do over time, or we flip it around, how pitchers do with more experience against a hitter, and the data are there to know. I, and, and this happens to be a series with little experience between them, so it'd be, it'd be interesting to know whose advantage who has a bigger advantage? Isn't that there? part of the lore, though, of the World Series? I mean, that's why a lot of purists were kind of against interleague play when it started. Like, I don't want the Yankees to play the Dodgers. Yeah. I want the Yankees to play to the Dodgers, this, if they do, right. in the World yeah. Series. That's and so neat. I want to see Altuve facing Kershaw for the first time. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to see it in some meaningless game in you know June. I want to see it when it really matters. Yeah. And that was, to me, as a kid, like, wow. I wonder if, you know, Oral Hirschheiser was pitching against, you know, Mark McGuire. What would happen right. when the great pitcher faces? Right. And I see it 15 times in June and July and August now. So to me, I don't think the purists were like, oh, you can't have interleague play. I think it kind of killed a little bit of the lore of the World Series. So one, one last question about the uniqueness of the World Series. What difference does it make, and empirically do we know anything about the advantage the NL has in NL parks where you play without the DH. 
Well, I think it's a huge advantage. I mean, people have claimed that, I know this is something in general you got, you and Rufus are looking at right now, is a lot of people will say it's a managerial advantage. Because for, you know, 162 games a year, the National League manager is thinking about substitution patterns, yeah. is thinking about double switches. The American League managers aren't thinking about that because they're thinking about the DH. Also, the American League players will probably have to readjust their lineup in some way that the National League is already used to. Right. Right, and with the team, with the offensive power of Houston, you might think there's a pretty big impact, or at least the room for damage is higher. So this is Wharton Moneyball. You can join the conversation, one eight four four wharton That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. Me and Eric, Cade, Cade Massey, Eric Bradlow in this morning, open lines in this first half hour. Eric, on the college football front, the other big sport that's going on right now, I, NFL's out there, I get it, I get it. We're going to talk NFL at the, end of the, at the end of the show. But anything in college jumping up at you? So, you know, you know, while I am a college football fan, I love watching college football. I'm more into getting to a disaster scenario for the committee. So I was You want to make their work as hard as possible. Yeah, no, I want to make it so that people are so outraged about the four teams that were picked that something has to be done that's more than a bunch of people with the eye test in the room who are deciding this in oh, some way. Oh, come on, come on, come on. Really? You're saying the system is you're as bent as you sounded, you might have been four or five years ago before we had a committee, before we had a playoff. I'm happier. That You've gone right past the joy of the playoff and uh, I want something different? I would like an expanded playoff, potentially. It's still going to be a committee with eyeballs. It's not going to change from that. Yeah, but I think the, you know. Isn't that right, though? I mean, are we such analysts that we believe we can replace human judgment altogether in something as complicated as this? I'm not. I'm definitely not. I want the blend. I want some algorithms, and I want some human judgment, and I want them to work together in some And, and you're way. confident. I, I will get to my disaster scenario in a second, but you're confident that the committee, I mean, we've had people that have been in the committee on guests on our show before. You're confident that the committee is both seeing the appropriate data and, to some degree, utilizing that data? I think they're, they're, seeing, they're seeing some numbers, and I think every year that passes, they, they get the good numbers in front of them um, with higher probability. How much to use them? I don't know. I do think the college football world is getting smarter and more savvy about analytics, and not least because ESPN's pushing FPI so much. The right. football power index is actually a very good number. And because they've got this platform sometime in the last year, they decided to start p pushing it hard. And it just changes. I think the whole conversation is smarter now because they've been doing that. No, I, I, I completely agree. There's no question there's progress being made. But let me go to my, I'll call it, so what I've done is actually, I've, I haven't looked entirely at the entire schedule, but I've tried to bucket teams into groups where, in some sense, it will be decided on the field. So two teams, which I know Massey Peabody likes both of them, everybody should like both of them, are Alabama and Georgia. Yep. Okay. The good news, if you'd like, in quotes, is they both can't be undefeated at the end of the season. That's right. They cannot. Therefore, it will. If assuming they both win out, SEC West, SEC East, it will be decided on the field. Now we could have a debate. Maybe you want to about. Let's imagine the doomsday scenario we've talked about. Let's imagine Georgia beats Alabama in that game in a close game. But Alabama, by every metric and every ranking, is the number one team in the country. Does a one-loss Alabama team that just lost the SEC championship game, do we put, do they get put into the college football playoff? You know Georgia would. I mean, they just beat Alabama. So we don't have to debate that. Would Alabama? And now if you do that, let's just start with that. Let me jump in there and say that's the kind of conversation people like to have, and I agree we should have it, but it's second order to what the field is. How many other – it's all about – 
how many other people are vying for those spots. So in some seasons, there would be enough destruction around the country that Alabama would be the, one of the only ones that only has one loss, and they'd be a much stronger contender. In other seasons, and this is shaping up to be one of them, there are many other teams out there that have one loss, and so it's much harder for that second team to get in. But you agree, it is possible. Matter of fact, it's not even so improbable that Alabama and Georgia could get in. It's oh, for sure. Okay. So now let's talk about another group of three where I think you would agree that th- more than one is not getting in. Let's take the triumvirate of all three contenders right now, Ohio State, Penn State, and Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. More than one of them is not getting in. No, I disagree. This, so the, you think the, Ohio State, let's say Ohio State beat Penn State, beats Penn State this week. Yeah. Okay? So you, but will you agree the following? If Penn State beats Ohio State, Ohio State's essentially eliminated. Correct. They'd be a two-loss this, team. This year, this year, a two-loss team is probably not going to make it. Okay. So your scenario, I guess, is Ohio State beats Penn State this week. Ohio State and Wisconsin play an undefeated Wisconsin plays Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game, and then Ohio State squeaks out some sort of win against Wisconsin, and both of them make it? No, a Penn State, a one-loss Penn State, who lost to a very highly regarded Big Ten champ, Ohio State, would be a contender. Penn State's very highly thought of. They're number two in the polls right now. People, they're excited about them. They have Heisman Trophy, leading Heisman Trophy candidate in Saquon Barkley. They they have a good case. And if their only loss is against a very good Ohio State team— Even if they're in, not in, in the Big Ten championship in, game? In Columbus, that's exactly the scenario that happened last year, except it was even more extreme because but, Ohio State wasn't in the Big Ten championship, and they jumped them over and left out the Big Ten championship. But I don't know the answer to this. Maybe, I assume you do. If Ohio State were to beat Penn State— would Ohio State be the front runner for the Big Ten championship game? Like, who goes to the, who would yeah. be? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay, so that's my question. So you're saying a pen, a one loss Penn State team that's not even in the Big Ten championship sure. game could make the playoffs? That's exactly how Ohio State made it last year. Okay, so that okay, so that's possible. All right, so that's another problem. Now we have another group of three teams, which I just found out something this morning that made me feel a little better. Not for the doomsday, but for the re- reasonable scenario: Clemson, Miami. And Notre Dame are kind of in a little bracket. Now, Notre Dame doesn't play Clemson this year, but Notre Dame does play Miami this year. So a lot of people have now started talking about Notre Dame. What if Notre Dame wins out Yeah, it's as an independent? Yeah, so very interesting. So w- what do we then do there? Now, the good news is Clemson and Miami, they have to play each other potentially yeah. in the ACC championship That's game. Right. So that yeah. helps resolve them. But now yeah. we've got Notre Dame sitting yeah. there. Yeah. So I'm starting to think we've already talked about a scenario where Alabama and Georgia. So hold on, let's, let's talk about that one for a second. Yeah. So Notre Dame is interesting. They they crushed USC this past week. And they didn't have a sing. They weren't in the, the top 25 in either poll before the season. And, of course, Notre Dame. And they haven't been really in the national conversation since they got crushed by Alabama. And I believe they only lost this year one-point game to Georgia. I don't That's remember the score. It was, it was one against point. Georgia. No, no, it was one point. They and, lost by one point to Georgia. And it was before people realized how good Georgia is. Um, so N- Notre Dame's legit. I mean, we have them. Where, where do we have them ranked? We have Notre Dame, you know, like 10th. We have, they just cracked our top 10. Um, but they, they've got a pretty tough schedule. So we give them about a one-in-six chance of winning out. You're, you want to know what happens if they win out. We Let's say, fine, we'll, in, we'll engage that, but still they have a lot of work to do before they win out. So about, about an 18% chance of winning out. Um, well, let's take the – let me just go back to – let's just follow on that thought. Let's play the doomsday scenario. Notre Dame plays Miami in the regular season. Let's say Notre Dame wins that game. Yeah. 
Let's imagine in the ACC. No, Doom, Doomsday Notre Dame wins out. That's so much more no, no, fun no. if Notre Dame well, I, wins I, I out. I want Notre Dame to win good, out. Good. And then I want Miami to beat Clemson yeah. in the ACC championship Th- that's game. That's going to knock Clemson all the way out. Right, Clemson's out, loss. but then what do we do with Notre Dame and Miami? Well, we don't yet know much about what the committee feels about head-to-heads because Notre Dame will have beat Miami but lost to Georgia. And these will all be one. In your scenario, these are all one-loss teams. So imagine we have Georgia with one loss. Let's imagine Georgia doesn't beat Alabama. Georgia with one loss. Notre Dame with one loss. Miami with one loss. Penn State. Penn State with one loss. Maybe a TCU. Well, I was... I was getting to TCU in just a second. TCU may be undefeated. Oh, hold on. What about, a, what about Washington winning out, but no one has any respect for their schedule, and they win the Pac-12 with one loss? This is a beautiful scenario you're well, sketching. It's a I'm, lot of fun. That, well, it's a lot you of asked fun. me if I was excited about college football. I'm excited about the doomsday. So, let me just say the following. There are so many paths that lead to some level of chaos that I'm yeah. so excited about it. <laughs> it's the, there isn't it's, one path to chaos. You agree to that? Oh no, There there's, are there's, many paths to chaos I, this and, year. And we've been saying it for a while, and it's much different than last year where there were only four or five teams. Even at this point in the season, we were quite sure. Th- then Penn State surprised us, granted. But three of the conferences, it was very clear. And the fourth was almost clear. And there was only one that was cloudy. And this year is very different. We've got strong contenders across the board. I have to admit, I do... it. You know, this is kind of an argument. I don't know if you buy this, but does this take a little bit of luster? I'd ask your thoughts on this away from the Penn State Ohio State game in the sense that the winner's not out. I'd love it to be like this is a playoff game, but you know, it's it not is, it quite. Is for, it is for Ohio State. Well, it is and, for Ohio and, State. And, and, and obviously, I mean, Penn State wins and they're going to win the East and they'll go into the Big Ten championship. I mean, almost certainly. Uh, I, no, I don't think the Lester's off. This is the biggest game of the year. This is, I mean, Big Ten football is usually not much watched TV for me, but I'm going to go out of my way to watch some of this Biggest game, game of the year to now, to, to date. Now. And it's going to be one of the biggest games of the year, but to, to date for sure. Okay, Eric, this raises a question, though. This doomsday thing, chaos, whatever you want to call it, which is, we're sh- this is the best of the four seasons we've had for the playoffs for this yet. And I think it's going to be, it's great fun. It raises the question of, how will the committee go about this? And if you're projecting, you know, we've been we've been projecting the college football playoff since week one. We're doing a regular Washington Post piece where we write it up on Monday, and we and, and the deal is who's going to make the playoff. So far, first half of the season is just kind of who's in the ballpark because who's who's to say whether they're going like Penn State or Georgia. You know, it doesn't matter because maybe Georgia's not going to make it. We can give you a pretty good sense of who's in the ballpark. But now we're rolling into the time where it starts mattering how they choose among the guys who are in the ballpark. And so if here's a question for you, because this, and this is what Rufus and I have been working on a little bit obsessively for the last almost week now. We want to improve the way we're forecasting what the committee's going to do. Because at this point in the season, it starts to matter. So if you were going to build that model, we've got, you know, it's not a lot of data, but you've got three years worth of data. You've got rankings one to 25, for each week, they produce them, which is, you know, six weeks a year or something. So, you know, it's like 18 times 25. They're not independent, so it's not quite that big. But you've got some data to work with. What are you going to put in that model? That's a great question. Actually, it's interesting. As you were telling me the question, I thought you were going to ask me a different question, which is what I would do. But let me answer your question, then I'll tell you what I would do. So the first thing is, I think the model that they're using is what I'll call a consideration set than choice model. Let's get the teams that we even need to discuss. And we do this 
you you obviously run or help run our people analytics initiative. That's the way I think people make choices among sets. You first get who is even worth discussing. I think that's a good way. You have to limit the set of teams. And then you start to – and I think Massey Peabody can do that. You can have, of all the teams – who is in the top six, eight, ten that they're actually considering? Then once you have it down to a smaller set, you build a choice function, which then says, what's the probability? What weights are being put on what characteristics? But within that choice set, and this is a well-studied problem, like, for example, is the SAT a great predictor of GPA for students that are already at Penn? No. But it's a good predictor of who's going to get here. And so it's a great statistical problem because the variables that help get you into the consideration set aren't necessarily the same variables that you would use to pick who should be in once you're in that set. Mm-hmm. This is one of the most classic statistical problems of all time. So I, I, like, I like that thinking. And heretofore, we have taken that approach exclusively. What's different and what I think gives us more power is that the playoff committee actually orders teams 1 to 25 every week. Absolutely. They may not be using the same logic, but they might be using the same logic as they go 1 to 4, which is the playoff seating, and then 5 to 25. Now, you've brought up something really interesting. I was even dumbing the data down even worse. Are you in the set or not? Let's build a model for that. And then once you're in the set, but you've pointed out something accurate. We don't have just in the set. We actually have the ranking in the set, which is very valuable data to use. Okay, so we've, we've been obsessing about this, and um, and and we're and we're making some progress, and we're gonna we're gonna predict. We need that for our projections, and so we're just gonna go ahead and say, okay, based on our model, this is what we predict the committee's gonna do this week, and so we'll be able to do an out of sample prediction and see how we do. So, for example, I can tell you, I can tell you where we are right now. Now, this is not a finished product, okay? We're gonna still tweak it. We're not there yet, and this is this is like so warm out of the oven, it's still squishy. Okay, don't don't push on it too hard. The, here's our here's our if the kid media was giving a ranking right now okay. and, and they're not they're, they're a week away we'd go Alabama Georgia TCU Miami Penn State and we can keep going Clemson Oklahoma Ohio State Wisconsin what does that do that's all undefeated teams in the top five your first one loss team is Clemson you and then you have a Wisconsin undefeated Wisconsin down there. Uh, been jumped by a few one-loss teams, but if, if so, we would say if the committee were seeding, the playoff would be Alabama one, Georgia two, TCU three, Miami four. Now, but notice this, what you've done. You've done what many people do. You study. This is what you write academic papers on. When you have a complex decision problem, which this is, people tend to use. Not, it's not in a bad way. Simplifying rules. So what you've done is you've said, look, what's the committee going to do for right now? Let's take essentially all the zero-loss teams, essentially, and then let's – that's a le- what's called a lexicographic process. Let's just take all the teams with zero losses. By definition, they're above the teams with, any, with more than zero losses. And then let's rank order within that. And for me, that's not horrible to do at this point of the season. And by the way, I'm ignoring the UCFs of the world, etc., who are also zero-loss teams. And by the way, for all you UCF and other fans out there, you will be hearing, you or USF, sorry, you will be hearing me rail against the system where when one of those teams is undefeated um, at the end of the season, I'm going to want one of them in the playoffs. I know you're going to say I'm nuts, but I'm going to want one of those, you know, 15, 16th ranked teams that's undefeated to get a shot in the playoffs. That's fun. That's one of, that's one of the good arguments for a bigger playoff. Let me, let me just round out the segment by saying we're also still projecting what we expect the playoff to be at the end of the year. 
and those are a little those those are a little different. We can compare what we think the committee would say today versus what we believe the committee is going to say at the end. And our projected our projected playoff at this point is Alabama, Ohio State, Clemson, TCU. So what are the differences there? Alabama and TCU are in both times, both now yep. and, and in the future. That says we believe TCU is going to man, squeak it out over Oklahoma. They've got a one-game lead over Oklahoma, but that's interesting. We replace Miami with Clemson because we think Clemson is actually a better team, so they're likely to beat them in the ACC final. And we replace Georgia with Ohio State, saying that the committee is probably going to take the ultimate Big Ten champion over a second team from the SEC. So that's how we see it right now. That's our best attempt. We know it's imperfect, but we're trying to be rigorous and quantitative about it so that we can make these projections. Every piece of data I've seen suggests that they're going to lean towards conference champions. So I I would agree with you. If there's a very legitimate conference champion, I see them taking them over someone. I see Ohio State over Clemson for exactly the logic you're thinking. And I I think the data suggests that that's what the committee has done the last few years. Good fun, good fun. Many more weeks to talk about this. It's one of the the most interesting times in the sports analytics world. All right, that has been our first quarter. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Daniel Bruno woke up in a heavy metal frame of mind apparently this morning. Sound engineer Daniel Bruno bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour. We have three quarters to go. Cade Massey hosting this morning with Eric Bradlow. You can join the conversation one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seventy eight sixty six. You can also email us during the show or one of the times we're replayed. If you catch it, it's a good way to reach us. Email us businessradio at siriusxm.com. Businessradio at siriusxm.com. You can follow us on Twitter at wmoneyball. Twitter account is out at wmoneyball. We talked a little baseball at the top of the hour. I had to get uh, Eric through the grieving process. He's in, I don't know, stage three or something. He's working his way through the stages of grief on his Yankees. And he's, uh, he's helped by the amazing Clayton Kershaw and his uh, appreciation for what that guy is doing out there. To help us with that appreciation, we want to make a call to the bullpen. Here comes the skipper on his way to the mound. That's going to be all for his starter this afternoon. Einstein said it best. It's great to have an open mind, but you don't want it so open that your brains fall out. Your mind is your master, and your body is your servant. When you can get your mind to train your body at that level, now you're mastering your mind to go with it. At the 0-1 count, Chipper Jones at 192. If you let Chipper hit the first pitch against you, cut your arm off and eat it. In God we trust, all others must have data. Warden Moneyball's call to the bullpen with Rick Peterson. Rick Peterson, former Major League Pitching Coach for the Mets, A's, Brewers, and Oreos. Sought-after motivational speaker and the co-author of a great book. We can highly recommend this book, Crunch Time. Crunch Time, How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most. Talking about performance under pressure. Rick is a longtime friend of the show, here with us through the baseball season and back this morning. Rick, good morning to you. All right. How's everybody doing today? We're good, man. We're good. How are you? All right, all right. The leaves are changing. How can you beat this? A fall classic. I know. You you baseball guys, you live for this moment. You live for it, I'm sure. Listen, tell me, as an Astros fan and as a casual baseball fan, it's so frustrating to watch a pitcher like Clayton Kershaw, man. I mean, you can't be anything done. And I can appreciate it because it seems pretty impressive. But as a pitching coach, are you, are you, is it just like what you live for to see that kind of performance? Well, without, without question, and, and I think what we've seen – throughout the entire postseason, when these dominant pitchers are on their game, they, they, they dominate the dominating hitters without question. 
when you watch that kind of dominating performance, what are you noticing? Like, when do you start saying this guy's got his stuff tonight, or these guys can't touch this guy, and well, why? Just the fact that they're they're so locked in with their location, and 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 I think when it's not about their stuff, their stuff is pretty much always about the same, without question. It's not like you ever see somebody go out there and, and start a game, and their velocity is off like by five or six, seven miles an hour. That's mm-hmm. never the case. Okay. You know, unless you're talking about injury. And the ball's always moving similarly? You mostly kind of break in the same way? Yeah, their horizontal and vertical movement, like if you look at TrackMan data on their spin rates and their vertical and horizontal movement, you know, is, is relatively the same. Is wow. that consistent. Okay. But I think more than anything else, they, they just don't make mistakes. Okay. And, and, and when you take a look at, um, you know, statistically, when pitchers execute their pitches in the proper location, this statistically it's all in their favor you know so there's really a calming effect when you prepare for the postseason as long as the pitcher avoids this whole trying too hard you know as we always say in these big moments it's great to have butterflies but they got to fly in formation right to the glove and right Shaw's butterflies were flying right to the glove yesterday right and, and and when that happens you know there's this incredible calming effect that that hey listen if i execute my game plan and i make these pitches in these locations, and when I miss, I miss in these locations, which is out of the out of the middle of the strike zone. I'm going to do well. I mean, it's just that simple. What do you tell a What do you tell a guy like Keuchel who basically did that, except for you know a couple pitches? I mean, literally made a couple mistakes. I, I would say to him, like, don't waste any money buying lottery tickets tonight. <laughs> that's exactly what i would say yeah just you know? just bad luck that he he, he left a couple of pitches over and, and these guys happen to put good swings on them exactly i mean because because one, one of the things that we talk about as you come into like spring training we we talk about let's see if we can improve by two percent so let, let's take keichel for example i'm not sure how many starts he had this year because he missed some time with some neck injury but if he if he was healthy the whole year, you're talking 32, 33 starts. So let's say 25 starts, you know, just for a round number. So those 25 starts, he roughly probably executed somewhere around, just put a round number on it, 2,500 pitches. And we say we say to the pitchers, let's see if we can make a two percent imprint or improvement coming into this year. Two percent mm-hmm. improvement, mm-hmm. meaning that if we took two percent of their total pitches. So 2% of 2,500 is what, 40? 50. 50, right. 40 would be 2,050. So, so let's, you got 50 pitches. So last night, let's, let's take with Keiko, let's take 2%. You got 2%. So let's say he executed 100 pitches last night. I don't know what his total pitch count was last night. But take two pitches. You got two mulligans. Mm-hmm. You got two mulligans to do over. Mm-hmm. You think that pitch that, that Justin Turner would be where it was if he had a chance to do it over right, again? Right. You'd be so mindful that there's no way that this is going to be a sinker at the bottom of the strike zone, yeah. you know, or below the strike zone. And 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 it's that's why it's just so critical, you know. So when you take a look at the total pitches in an entire game, the average on both sides of the fence is roughly about 297 pitches. You know, I mean, this is, I mean, so this is right, right up your alley. This, statistically, this is what this is about. So 2% of that is like basically one and a half. Mm-hmm. You know, you got one and a half pitches, you know, that, that are going to make a total difference in the game. You know, so when you look at these games and you look at the razor's edge of the difference of winning and losing, this is not 10 or 15 pitches in the course of the game. It's, it's, only, it's only one or two, maybe three, you know, that, that, that make a total difference in the game. And then every now and then, you know, 
and, it, and it's happened probably a little bit more than now than it has then, that, that hitters will hit a good pitch, a pitch that's actually properly executed, and especially a guy like an Altuve, you know, who's like one of the he's MVP, with probably without question, probably MVP of both leagues for that matter. Um, you know, he hits he hits pitches that are out of the strike zone, and and, and does some damage. Mm-hmm. What um what what do you think the the Astros lineup was thinking last night as they were facing Kershaw? So one, they hadn't many of them faced him before, and then he seemed to be having a great outing. Uh, and there it is in the first game of the World Series. Can you give us some sense of what is what those guys are thinking, especially the first time they've seen a pitcher? Well, they come into the series, and they've all done their homework, and you've looked at a ton of videotape. But videotape is not the same, obviously, as you know, is, is being in the batter's box and taking a look at what this really looks like. And, and then they, they start to realize that, wow, I mean, this guy's got good stuff, without question. And, and they keep telling themselves, look, let's get, get the ball up. I, I, I want to make sure I see the ball up and avoid chasing balls down out of the strike zone, especially his breaking ball. And, and, and you, you keep trying to be that disciplined. And at the same time, you realize that um, you know, you're not going to win this game by walking. He's not going to walk. He's not going to walk all these batters. You're mm-hmm. going to have to actually hit the baseball, and and so they try to be as disciplined as they can, and they realize that as this game is unfolding, that listen, I mean, what we what what we need to score a couple runs because if we don't have a lead by the time they get to Morrow and Jensen, we're, we're in big trouble. I mean, I think what have they given up? Like one or two runs in 28 innings in the postseason. Is that right? Okay. Know, out, out of their out of their bullpen. You know, so when you have the when you have those kind of performances, you realize your 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 window of expectation is is really really small. You know, because of how good these guys are, and it's going to be the same thing tonight, especially on the other side of the fence, right. especially with L.A. You know, facing Verlander. Right. Ver, Verlander's been he, he's been just unbelievable since he came to Houston. I mean, yeah. this totally re, re, re-energized and revitalized. Know who this person is as a dominating pitcher. Well, and, and, and kudos to Houston for pulling that, pulling the trigger on that thing. They were in a good, they were in good shape, and they thought that was one of the key pieces to put them over the top. We're talking to Rick Peterson, longtime major league pitching coach. Rick Peterson, author of Crunch Time: How to Be Your Best When It Matters Most, and a longtime friend of the show here at Wharton Moneyball. Can a little bit more on Kershaw? Can, can I ask you a stupid question? The 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 outside non baseball watching fan. Sure. Um, Kershaw's windup is a little funny. There's a little extra hitch in there. Mm-hmm. As a pitching coach, how do you think about that? What do you think the consequences are? Well, well, when you well, first of all, I think what you've seen his vulnerability and and injury always is a major factor with pitchers. And Kershaw's vulnerability is his back, and he's had chronic back issues now. I mean, it's the second year in a row he's missed time with his back, and so you start to look at that delivery without without getting a biomechanical analysis. You start to say like. You know, this is like kind of funky that obviously it's putting some pressure on his back, you know, in, 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 in some shape or way or form. Mm-hmm. And because of his, what he does is his tempo is just so erratic and it's so funky that he really throws off timing. So when you look at, you know, to, again, to oversimplify, hitting his timing and pitching is throwing off the hitter's timing. Right. And not only with the great stuff that he has, he throws it off with his stuff. You know, with, with the range of speeds and different vertical and horizontal movements with his with his curveball and slider, and and then his ability to elevate the fastball and then pound below the strike zone with his off-speed stuff, but he he throws hitters' timing off w- with his delivery, right? Because it's just so funky. I would think so. Mm-hmm. 
yeah, without question. So, I mean, so it really, it really is very difficult, especially when you take a look at, you know, some of the hitting styles. Like you look at a Justin Turner, and he has that really high leg kick, and and it's amazing to me that he's been on the run that he's been on because that that style is very vulnerable to like really drastic change of speed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but he's he's been locked in that his timing right now is just. You know, it's been impeccable. Mm-hmm. Rick, this is Eric Bradlow, so it's good to speak to you again. It's been a few weeks. Um, one of the questions that Kate and I were talking about early on in the first half hour, which would be love your thoughts about, is um, as, you know, has analytics... Well, first of all, let's talk about historic. Let me ask you a question first, historically. Mm-hmm. Who has who has a greater advantage as a pitcher sees a batter more? Is it the pitcher who starts to learn the batter's weakness, or is it the batter who starts to learn the tendencies of the pitcher? What, what's been your experience? I would say that the batter starts to it starts to catch up as the batter starts to see more and more of what this pitcher's about. I mean, I remember I remember like talking to Pedro Pedro Martinez the first time that we had the Subway Series when I was with the Mets and we played the Yankees. So I was going through each one of our pitchers' matchups against the, the Yankee lineup, and and Pedro had pitched again. He had faced Derek Jeter over a hundred times. I've never seen I've never seen it, not even close to that. Maybe forty, maybe forty or fifty might have been like the most I've ever seen a pitcher face a batter. Mm-hmm. And I remember saying to Pedro, I said, "Pedro, you faced Derek Jeter fifth, over a hundred times." And he looked at me and said, "Rick, there's only seventeen inches. I only have so many pitches. Like, how many places do you think I could possibly go? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in such a small space." And he said, "That's why when I pitch against the Yankees." He goes, I am emotionally drained by the time this whole thing is over with, you know, trying to go through this whole thing in my mind, you know, with Bernie and Bernie Williams and Posada and, and Derek Cheater, the guys at Matsui, the guys that have been the mainstays in that lineup. And he goes, God, I face these guys so many times, and they know I only have four pitches. Um, you know, so I think as time goes by, but the, the batter starts to get a little bit more of a comfortable edge, but but if a, if a if a pitcher dominates a hitter, you know th- then I think that edge continually stays with the pitcher because this batter just has not been able to figure out, you know, how am I going to attack this 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 pitcher? And I guess that's probably the more relevant question within the series because they may see Kershaw, they may see him two more times if they're if they're lucky and make it to a game seven, they may see him two more times, mm-hmm. so they may get you know another four five six at bats against him. But you're saying. That that may not be enough. By the time you've had seen him fifty times, sure, but especially if he blew you away in that first game, it may not be an advantage to see him a few more times. Is that right within the series? I, I would say that's the case. I mean, when you when you look at a pitcher that gets locked in, and 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 the, and again, the, the chance. In other words, the chance of a pitcher making a mistake, the more pitches he throws to a hitter, obviously becomes greater. I mean, that's just obvious, you know. But if but if a pitcher doesn't make mistakes and he doesn't leave pitches up out over the plate. Consistently, I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, who, who's who's the big uh, San Francisco Giants pitcher who dominated the series three or four years ago? Baumgartner. Yeah, Baumgartner. I mean, just completely took it over, right? Yep. And yep. I guess that we've seen we've seen some examples we've seen some examples of that happening. We, so, it, it felt like Kershaw could do that this year. Yeah, so, Cade, let me ask, uh, I mean, uh, Brick, let me ask a question that builds on Cade's question. He just mentioned the possibility of uh, Kershaw pitching, you know, three games in the series. How have you, I mean, I know you've looked at this analytically many, many times. You've talked about it on our show. Would you rather have the great Clayton Kershaw on three days rest, or would you rather have 
a lesser pitcher, let's say their fourth best starter, on full rest? Well, I mean, it, that, that is such a difficult question because statistically the numbers do not they're, – they're, they're, they're totally against the pitcher pitching on three days rest mm-hmm. without question. And, and I think just because so few people can possibly do that, that do that or do that well. But if you take, if you take the greats, you'll, you'll always take the great because the, the whole – I remember Willie Stargell many, many years ago and he was talking about Daryl Strawberry when Daryl Strawberry was a, was a young player with the Mets. And Strawberry had like a, his finger was really bothering him. And he couldn't swing the bat the way that he would like to swing it. And he didn't play. And Willie Stargell, as, a, as being the mentor that he is and, and the great person that he is, you know, he talked to Strawberry towards the end, at the last game of the series. He said, you know what? He said, you're one of the greatest players in the game. He said, even if your finger's bothering you and you really can't swing the way you'd like to, just stand up there, okay? <laughs> Nobody knows how badly your finger's hurting. You know, your, your presence in the lineup, you know, just goes such a long way because the pitcher's going to have to grind, you know, not knowing that your finger is bothering you so badly that you can't put the kind of swing that you'd like to on it. Mm-hmm. I mean, but it's different for a pitcher because, you know, a batter's only going to, like, walk into the batter's box, like, once every 45 minutes in the game. You know, but but a pitcher having to make every pitch, but but you take those dominant pitchers and and you look at the, you know, the World Series lore of what these guys have done, the Sandy Koufaxes, you know, the Randy Johnsons, the Schillings on short rest coming in out of the bullpen, you know, Randy Johnson came in and pitched what did he pitch two innings out of the bullpen the day after he had a complete game, I mean that that's unheard of. It's crazy, but then you know, but then. Madden and Chapman last year seemed like a, an attempt to do that that almost back did backfire on him short term. Exactly, exactly. Because you, we've said this many times on the show, you know, when you get into the season and you establish what your pitch counts are, you know, as a reliever throughout the course of a week and as a starter throughout the course of your cycles, that the pitchers they're right next to the wall. They're right next to the wall. And you don't know how close they are, and if they hit that wall. They don't come off the wall for a long time. Yeah, they don't yeah. come off the wall for a long time. But you're at the time of the year, and this is why you see so frequently pitchers the following year that pitch deep into October. The following year is, is has not been very kind statistically. Wow, wow, that's interesting, and mm-hmm. a little, and a little surprising that even after three months rest or four months mm-hmm. or whatever it is. I just want to ask Rick a quick question because some uh, Kate and I talked about in the first half hour. How much does the postseason narrative, you know, Kershaw being three and zero in this postseason, and you've been around a lot of Hall of Fame pitchers, some of which have had great postseason careers, some of whom have not has had not as great. How much do you think this will change the narrative when people think about the great Clayton Kershaw? Totally, totally changes the narrative. You know, because there, because the postseason. I mean, I think it's the same debate that you get into the quarterbacks. You know, you, you get into the quarterback ratings of, of like, Eli Manning and, and, like, Drew Brees, for example. You know, Drew, Drew Brees. Oh, my Brees gosh. Has, Great comparison. You know, Great yeah, comparison. Yeah, Drew Brees. And, and Drew Brees' numbers on turf are off the charts. I mean, so, so you can't even compare playing on, tur- playing on turf and playing in the Northeast, you know, as, as, the, as the winter starts to, you know, come in. And the, the the winds start to blow, and the stadiums are different. And Drew Brees has won one game in the postseason on the road. I think I think Eli Manning has won four on the road. 
You know, so you look at Eli Manning's postseason records, it, it's, it's made Eli Manning's career. You know, when you look at his regular season records, he's not going to be somebody that's going to throw for, you know, 5,000 yards and, you know, do something crazy. I, I think Drew Brees has over 60-some thousand passing yards. Eli Manning only has 50,000. Well, that's a, that's a fascinating comparison because I agree entirely on the psychology and the assessments we make. But I'm not sure if you're if you're going to play one playoff here. I, I would if you have one quarterback, you have to choose between those two guys to play one playoff game. And let's put them on the road somewhere. I'm going to go Breeze. I think. Well, the, the the numbers will tell you something totally different. But in a smaller sample, and and it's tough to like the Giants versus the Saints. You know, maybe maybe Manning maybe has, has better receivers. I don't know. It's a provocative. It's a provocative comparison. Because, well, I mean, this is, this is we have to let you go right now, Rick. But you've just given us a topic for another for another day. Listen, man, thanks for taking time out to join us. Um, enjoy the World Series. Always fantastic to talk to you. Appreciate your insights this morning. Always a pleasure. And, and Eric, you know, you can you can put the flag up at the top of the pole now for the Yankees. I mean, they they accomplished exactly what they wanted to accomplish this year. <laughs> I certainly feel better than I did at the beginning of the season, but I wish they had made the World Series. Yeah, thank exactly, you. Rick. Exactly right. Thank All right, guys, take care. Appreciate it. Take care, man. What? A, what? Well, great stuff on on Kershaw and pitchers and the World Series as as usual. Great stuff. Anything jump out to you? There? Yeah. Well, just my last closing thought about the World Series is the uh, first time since 1970 that two teams facing each other in the World Series have over 100 wins. It's amazing. Both teams have over 100 wins, the Dodgers and the in Astros. almost 50 years. Yep, and the last time was the great 1970 World Series between the Orioles, the Brooks Robinson Orioles, and the Reds, which was the beginning of the big red machine. Uh, so this is great. a historic World Series, and I'm it, glad Rick got me all. Now I'm, now I'm actually more <laughs> jacked up for the World Series than I was, even though the Yankees aren't in it. That's great. Well, that's been half the show. We still have another half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddy, faculty, colleague, and Wharton Moneyball collaborator, Eric Bradlow. Adi and Shane are out today. They'll be back. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10, live from uh, the Huntsman Hall building here at Wharton School. You can join the conversation, 1-844-WHARTON. That's 1-844-942-7866. 1-844-942-7866. Give us a call. Matt's standing by for that. You can also email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at W. Moneyball. Rolling into the last half hour, we have another guest this segment. Then we'll have open lines at the bottom of the hour. Coming up, joining us, I believe from Washington, D.C., is Neil Greenberg. Neil is a staff writer with the Washington Post. His beat is sports analytics. You can find him in their Fancy Stats blog. He covers all pro sports as well as some college football and basketball. He also hosts Crash in the Net. It's a show on 106.7 WFAN in Washington, D.C. Crash in the Net, his show in D.C., Neil, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being on. Delighted to have you. I can't believe we haven't had you before, to be honest with you. Where are you calling in this morning? I am in D.C. in one of our radio booths. All right. Well, appreciate you making the time. Sure thing. Can you Before we dive into some of what you've been writing about, you, you've got some interesting pieces up, in, from especially the NFL and NBA. 
Um, can you give us a little background on how you got going this direction? Did, I assume you started out as a traditional journalist and and migrated in some in some way to the analytic side, or did it go the other way? Um, actually, I had very little journalism background uh, when I started. Um, I uh, I was actually just writing for myself online, and uh, luckily one of the one of the sports editors here saw something I wrote about the Washington Capitals. Um, liked it and asked if I wanted to do a weekly column uh, looking at hockey from an analytical lens. And, of course, I said yes. So I was freelancing for the Washington Post for a couple years. Um, I then uh, also did some freelancing for ESPN, uh, again, with hockey. Um, and then uh, about two, three years ago, right before Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post, um, I had pitched to, to do all sports uh, via sports analytics and um, ended up uh, working out, and the rest is history. Here I am talking to you. <laughs> well, that's great, Neil, and it's great for the Washington Post to have a, to have created a platform like that for sports analytics and, and journalism. The what, what was your when you when you were just doing it on your own? Where did you where did the analytics come from, and how did you get into thinking about sports from that angle? So I start. It started back for me at least in. Um, and I would say the early 1990s, I had started using the teachings of Bill James to get an edge in my fantasy baseball leagues. Mm-hmm. So I, I, de- I devoured everything that, that Bill James ever wrote. And, um, and then I, I started thinking about how a lot of his writings, especially in the early baseball abstracts, are, are templates, are really just a methodical way of looking at sports from the outside, and I started, um, I started using that. I'm, I'm a big fan of hockey; I always have been. And I started using those same teachings for hockey, and um, that's really where I started to to look at the game a little bit differently. Can you give uh, us like, Can you give us one example of making that translation from from Bill James's work to hockey? Like, what was the first thing you said? Well, this this is an interesting idea in baseball. I wonder how I can apply it in hockey. Well, the the projections were the the biggest thing. Like looking at outliers, looking at players. You know, in baseball, there's a lot of talk about batting average on balls in play and how much luck is involved in that. In terms of once a player hits the ball, they don't really have control over yep. what happens to it. Um, and the similar parallel in hockey is shooting percentage. Once right. a player sends the puck to the net, it's it's mostly out of his control. Right. And what we found is that the shooting percentage fluctuates just as much as batting average on balls in play. So for me, it was looking at which players, quote-unquote, got lucky uh, one year and then what to expect the following year. So that's that was probably the, the first light bulb that went Man, off. That must have been complete heresy uh, in the NHL in the 90s. It um, still is. <laughs> no, that's a shame. Really? That's amazing. What, yeah. But those guys, I mean, it seems like hockey is – is kind of surreptitiously, surreptitiously moving in that direction. They, they they seem to be gobbling up hockey bloggers, sports analysts yeah. all over the country have been gobbled up by NHL NHL teams, and then they shut them down. Like they can't they can't publish anything that they're writing and doing. Yeah, I mean it's great for them, um, and it's a little bit heartbreaking for people like me that rely on the on the data aggregation, but. Right. Uh, but it shows you that, like you said, that hockey in particular, who many think is immune to analytics and you can't look at the game analytically, um, obviously are spending big money. I mean, Toronto hired a GM, uh, uh, assistant GM from 
from their minor league ranks that had a, a very analytical view of, of how the game is played, turned around their one of their uh, AHL franchises, and then, like you said, was, was hiring bloggers left and right. Yep. Um, and that's really the, the – that's – that's the money ball, right? I mean, money ball isn't just looking for players that have high on base. It's looking to get an edge in your sport um, in any way that you can, whether that's a 1%, 5%, 10%, or whatever. Right. And for, for hockey, analytics was the new frontier, and I think it's only going to get uh, more robust as they start to introduce player tracking and things of that nature. But, yep. um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, uh, it's been a fertile ground for bloggers, especially in terms of hockey jobs. So, Neil, this is Eric Brown. I want to build on your hockey point. Um, does this imply the old lore, both two lores in hockey? Um, you know, you can't score if you don't shoot, and the guys that put up the most shots are the guys that are going to be valuable, given the degree of randomness that appears. Well, it depends. I mean, there there is certainly a shot volume component, like you said. I mean, if you're not taking shots, you can't score, period. Um, but what we're learning in hockey is that the quality of shot does matter, right? I mean, if you're if you're taking a slap shot from the from the blue line, that has a less of a less of a chance of going in. Um, let's say it's somewhere around four percent versus a shot in the slot or near the crease, close to the goaltender, which has a fifteen percent chance of going in. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So. So there's there was a for a long time we looked at what we call the the puck possession metrics right the shot attempts yep and and looked at that at that as a proxy of the proxy of puck possession which it is obviously however um, just taking shots or just getting shots blocked isn't what's going to to create the the goals um, so you do have to look at quality and there's probably been a shift there in terms of which teams are really good at creating scoring chances and always have the puck. A team like the Toronto Maple Leafs comes to mind. You look at how they play, and they're really just swarming in the slot almost every single game, and they're putting up a ton of shots. And that's why they're one of the most prolific scoring teams in the NHL right now. So, Neil, this is Eric Bradlow again. Um, Your thought about the 4% from the blue line versus 15% in the crease, and since you study the NBA as well, made me start to think about, is there an analogy between that and taking a, a good two-pointer and a good three-pointer. So it started to make me think, because you were, and it also made me think about your analogy between how you took what Bill James had done in baseball and related it to other sports. Do you see any analogy between the analytics you're doing in hockey and the two-point, three-point debate that's going on in the NBA right now? Well, yeah, because you're looking at, for, for basketball, you're looking at, you're seeing the, the mid-range shot be, be phased out because it's inefficient. Um, you, it, there's literally a one-step difference a one like a one foot difference in terms of just where your feet are between a two point mid range and a three point shot and since they have almost the same rate of of converting you're much better off taking a three point shot if you're looking at it from an efficiency standpoint the 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 most efficient shots are obviously the two free throws that you get um followed by shots in the restricted area like layups and then three point shots most specifically the corner three um, but like you said, there there are good two point shots, right? If you're wide open, then absolutely you you take the shot as opposed to a contested three. So there's some there's some you know levels of grayness there too. And you look like a, look at a team like the Houston Rockets, which which really just focuses almost exclusively, I want to say, somewhere in the neighborhood of 75 to 80 percent of their shots in the restricted area and behind the three-point line, because those are the ones where you get the most bang for your buck. Mm -hmm. We're talking to Neil Greenberg. Neil is staff writer for the Washington Post. 
His beat is sports analytics. He also hosts a show on 106.7 down there called Crash in the Net. Neil, uh, we didn't know we were going to talk about hockey. We'd love to talk more about hockey. Let's, <laughs> let's let the season warm up a little bit. We don't talk enough here about hockey, so we'll have you back later in the year to do that. You've written, Eric's just talked about basketball a little bit. Basketball season's underway. On the one hand, it's boring because the Warriors are loaded up and everyone thinks they're going to win again. On the other hand, at least some other teams, especially in the West, have have restocked in a way to, to make a run at those guys. You you have a piece recently, the Houston Rockets are built to dethrone the Warriors. You're a little more optimistic than some folks are on the Rockets. Tell us about that. Well, you got you like you said. I mean, the the Golden State Warriors were really good before they got Kevin Durant, and then they became I don't want to say unstoppable, but they they just have so many weapons on the court. So the first thing to to stopping the Golden State Warriors is you got to frustrate you got to frustrate them a little bit. You got to get hands in passing lanes. You have to slow down the offense. Can't let them get in transition and. You also have to be able to keep up with an offense that has Durant, Steph Curry, another two-time MVP, uh, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green, etc. And the Rockets can do that. Even with James Harden, the Rockets had a, a, a very prolific offense, up-tempo, like, as I said before, high-efficiency areas, making, getting to the rim, converting their three-point shots. I want to say they took the most three-point shots in, in NBA history by, by a lot. Um, as did Cleveland last year. So, but that wasn't enough. So what they did was they got Chris Paul, they got P.J. Tucker, and they got some other defensive players to help do all those things to that can slow down Golden State. And I think that they're they're perfectly suited to 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 dethrone them because of that. So could, and, just just can we jump on that for a sure. quick second? So many people, you know. I guess most sophisticated basketball fans realize that CP3 is a highly rated defensive player, but most think of him first as a point guard, and you, right. you kind of naturally default to thinking about a guy's offensive production. You're arguing that Maury and the Rockets' motivation for picking up Paul was more on the defensive side than the offensive side. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, his, his offense is great, but they you need defensive players that can that can that can hang with with Golden State. And there's a lot of concern about, well, there's only one basketball, and Chris Paul is ball-dominant, and James Harden, of course, is ball-dominant. James Harden, you really have two point guards back there. But, you know, look, the Rockets are probably, with Daryl Morey, the most forward-thinking basketball organization there is right now. I mean, you look at just the way that they're built and the way that they play, it's clear that the analytics have driven a lot of their um, decisions on the court. And, um, you know, you look around the league, and we're kind of gravitating towards this in terms of the quote-unquote super teams. Well, you need at least three stars now, right? You need at least two superstars, and the Rockets have that. But you look at how – you look at what they did last year, and then you look at what they did during the preseason. That, and that was what I wrote about, too, in the article, is that they were – they were being much more aggressive in the passing lanes, deflecting passes, uh, getting loose balls, contesting shots. And that, to me, was a signal of developing chemistry in that way because there was going to be a change of philosophy because that really is the only way that you can stop Golden State. You have to slow down that offense just by a little bit in order to have any sort of chance, and I think that's what the Rockets can do. Uh, Fascinating and, and, and helpful to hear. Let me ask a selfless question. 
Can you analyze P.J. Tucker for me? He is probably my favorite Texas Longhorn who's come through in the last 20 years. He was a remarkably satisfying player to have on your team as a college player, partly because he was he was kind of an average size guy, but he's one of these guys who's just always he gets the ball in the hoop, he's around the ball, he just does these little dirty little things. He's just a highly, highly efficient basketball player around the rim. At least that's what he was like in college. I am so delighted that he's eked out, and now more than eking out, a career in the NBA. How would you, you're more objective than I am, how would you analyze him as a player? I think that he's he's the type of player that every title contender needs because he can do everything, like you said, right? I mean, he's, he's really good on spot-up shooting. Um, he he can um you don't you can't leave him open behind the three point line cuz they'll convert those um he's a he's a very good defender block shots um goes after loose balls and they need that type of defensive tenacity to to slow down the better teams in the league is he like a little bit he's like a current battier he's like Maury's new battier <laughs> you know i i that's a, that's actually a great um that that's a that's a great analogy. Only PJ Tucker actually has stats, right? Where Shane Battier <laughs> was kind of the no stat was dubbed the no stats all star. But um, you know PJ Tucker can score. He can he can hit the three. He he will hurt you if left unguarded, and and he brings all that other defensive stuff. So I think that it's a it's a shrewd signing, and it just shows you the the type of player that the Rockets were were looking for and and made sure that they get and then you add him to guys like Chris Paul and James Harden who are threats in of themselves obviously and you can only guard one of them and you can only double team one of them and if PJ Tucker's the 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 beneficiary of that then he could have a a really nice season and be a key cog in a title contender so neil this is eric bradlow again do you like i know you've written about this as well about the thunder and carmelo anthony does that do you like what the rockets did more so than what uh you know okc did with getting obviously paul george and carmelo anthony how do you compare what they've added to what the rockets have done well the you know Carmelo Anthony, much like Russell Westbrook, is used to having the ball in his hands, right? He's used to creating the offense of his team and being the number one focal point. And I wrote about it could work in 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 Oklahoma City, but they need to use Carmelo to his biggest strength, and that's as a as a spot up shooter and someone that can can take some of the pressure off of Westbrook. Um, I wasn't a big fan of it. I don't think it necessarily moved the needle for Oklahoma City as much as some of the other moves around the league. And the the change isn't happening. I know that Carmelo, like he he changed his game when he was on the USA basketball teams for the Olympics, uh, having other superstars around him. But so far... He ranks third in the league for um, ISO situations, which is when he takes the ball man man to man against a defender, um, and and that's really not what's going to make Oklahoma City successful. There's very few players that can dominate, or I should say, that can really help a team by by going at it alone. And you saw the ceiling for the Oklahoma City, right, with with Russell Westbrook. Yeah, it was a great triple double season, but. The Thunder were never really taken seriously as title contenders. Um, obviously, LeBron James can can do it because he's so good at, at everything else. But uh, I wasn't a big fan of uh, Carmelo going from New York to the Thunder. Do you see a scenario where you know? Let's imagine uh, 
you know, Westbrook and Carmelo are both going to play 37, 38 minutes a game. Let's imagine, do you imagine a scenario where maybe Carmelo is also the leader of the second team? So maybe he, when the 10 minutes a game that Westbrook is out, that that's the time you allow Carmelo? Is there a way to complement, use them in a complementary fashion? Yeah, I mean, you, you, you bring up a great point. A lot of, a lot of the, a lot of the, um, the reasoning behind getting these superstars is is not only because they're good, it's because you always have a superstar on the court, right? And and that's certainly a way that Oklahoma City can do it. But but just the the whole hero ball mentality is not conducive to winning. I mean, you need to spread the floor. You need to get out in transition. You you need to to have a lot of ball movement and and find the open man. I, I think if you're if you got Carmelo to make your team one-dimensional when Russell Westbrook's on the bench. I just don't see that as advancing their cause that much um, because when they're both on the court, they're not complementing each other. They're they're almost fighting for the ball. So I'm curious to hear both you guys talk about the Sixers. They're not going to be competing like those guys are this year, but hopefully they're on this arc to being interesting. And you said Maury's team is the most far Far, forward-looking team. That's only because Sam Hinkie is not around anymore. But he, <laughs> right. but he set this roster on a, ter- a certain trajectory that's beginning to bear fruit. Eric is a season ticket holder, and so he'll have a studied opinion here too. But what are you guys seeing from the Sixers so far? Well, I think you're seeing the the the, the quote-unquote process bearing some fruit, right? I mean, they have a, a lot of talent on that roster, and there was. There was a lot of, uh, you know, much like Houston, there, there were three teams last year that really followed the blueprint, um, or I should say overcommitted, if you, if you will, to the blueprint of layups and um, shots behind the three-point line. And that was Houston. It was the Brooklyn Nets and also the 76ers. And the philosophy is there for both those teams, right? But the, the, but the, the skill level wasn't able to execute. And I think we're starting to see perhaps – Philadelphia execute a little bit better. I know that their their record doesn't doesn't show that, but um, I, I see something very similar to, you know, use a baseball analogy with the World Series, like the Houston Astros, right? The Houston Astros got a lot of young talent, brought them in. It took a year or two to kind of get their bearings, but then here they are in the in the World Series. Now, I'm not saying the 76ers are going to be in the NBA Finals in a year or two, but you can certainly see. The, the the talent there, and you can certainly see this team growing and developing some chemistry and being a problem for other teams down the road. Yeah, Neil, this is Eric Brado again. As Cade mentioned, I do go to a lot of the games. I follow the Sixers closely. My assessment, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this so far, is you know, if Embiid can stay healthy, he's going to be great. And Ben Simmons is even greater than, I mean, it's only been four games, but this guy looks like the real, real deal. So from what you've seen from the two, and Markel Fultz, it's hard to know he's injured. We're hoping, you know, that wasn't a number one pick we traded up for that turns out to be, but I mean, it's way too early to tell. But is my is my assessment, am I just, you know, looking through rosy glasses, and B looks great, and Simmons looks, even though he was highly hyped, even greater. Yeah, I mean, and these, and this is what you want from your high draft picks, right? One of the, one of the the reasons why teams tank them, or at least get the the top picks, is because they're bad teams, and that's how they're they're rewarded through the through the lottery. Um, but I agree with you. I think the only concern I have about Ben Simmons is 
will he be able to consistently shoot in the NBA? That was a problem of his coming out of college. He wasn't a great jump shooter. You do need a good jump shot in the NBA. Um, you know, I, I'd like to see that develop so that that kind of um, that, uh, that limitation of his game is gone. It certainly looks like it may be, uh, but like you said, it's still early. But, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, this core of Embiid, Simmons, and Fultz when healthy could be good, very good for a very long time because they're so young. And it's and and they're all developing the chemistry together. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's certainly there's certainly reason for optimism in Philadelphia, and it, it definitely starts with those three players. Well, let's talk about the opposite of young. I just read yesterday that the Cleveland Cavaliers are now the oldest team in the NBA. So let's talk about the other three. Maybe on I don't know if it's Cleveland's big three or not, but um, LeBron, Derrick Rose, and D Wade. I know you've written about that as well. So how does that work? Like you know. Can they stop anybody defensively? Like, I watched some of the Bulls game last night. Maybe the Bulls played a good game. But, you know, the Cap- the Bulls had no trouble scoring 112, 115, whatever it was last night against the Cavs. So we just talked about the young Sixers. How are you perceiving the old Cleveland Cavaliers? I think they're vulnerable, and I wrote that they were vulnerable. And I wrote that bringing in Derrick Rose and Dwayne Wade might have been a good idea six years ago. But today, they're they're just not they're not good. I mean, Derek Rose. Derek, <laughs> Speak your you mind. Are, you Speak know, your you mind, at, Neil. We, we look at some of the advanced metrics, right? And, and, we, and we're always looking at you know how a player contributes to winning. Um, Derek Rose's best season was probably the one that he was injured, only because he didn't cost his team wins that year. Wow. He pretty much cost his team wins every year, and he's a big name, and people gravitate towards his MVP season and still think that there's some of that left, but there hasn't been that in years. Um, you know, Dwayne Wade is is not the type of player that you bring in to a championship team because he doesn't do the things that, that get you wins. I mean, again, it's another big name, and certainly him and LeBron have chemistry, but I just, I don't, I didn't see these moves as a net positive for LeBron. Um, I'm I think that they're vulnerable in the East. We're seeing Toronto come out of the box very well. We're seeing the Wizards win some games. You know, Boston had the injury to Gordon Hayward in the opener. And, you know, when I wrote that article, I got a lot of hate mail about, um, from Cleveland fans. And then Cleveland steamrolled uh, Boston, or I should say they, they beat Boston by one. And I got emails like, see how wrong you were. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> they beat Boston by one when Boston lost one of its key players early in the game. I mean, this isn't really what you're, what you're expecting from this team. And now they're getting blown out. Um, and, and they're being almost embarrassed in a way. Wow. Um, so, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of, of what Cleveland did. But... You know, they have LeBron James, and, and they're the kings of the East until they're proven otherwise. We're talking to Neil Greenberg. Neil is staff writer at the Post, Washington Post. His beat is sports analytics. You can also catch him on the radio down there, 106.7. That's WFAN. 106.7 does a show called Crash in the Net. Neil's been helping us get up to speed on the NBA. He's got some good takes there on um, how these teams are coming together. We're going to have to let you go soon, but not before we hear a little bit of football from you, especially because there is another source of optimism in Philadelphia. And we'd be talking about this even if we weren't sitting here in Philadelphia. What do you make of Carson Wentz? Um, I think he's he's done great and complete turnaround um, from, you know, a season ago. But he's 
He's completing passes. He looks great. He's looking great. I think what's helping him the most is that um, it's on prime time, right? I mean, he's just having these huge, these huge multi-touchdown games on on national TV, and that immediately elevates his status from fringe MVP candidate to what I believe is the front runner after his performance against Washington. So, you the the Eagles are obviously one of the top teams in the league by win loss record. You, as an analyst, try to go beyond W's and L's. Do you believe in the team? Um, I do. They're actually. I have um, my power rankings come out tomorrow, and um, I'm looking at it here. They're they're my top team. Oh, we just lost Neil Greenberg. Glorious, gloriously crashed there. Well, but- I can add something about the Eagles <laughs> since uh, we talked about that. The the part that has you know made me in- it's most interesting to me is. If I had told you that seven weeks into the NFL season there'd be only one team with one loss, that, first of all, that distribution seems very compressed. And secondly, that it would be the Eagles and that they would have, let's remember last year's record, that they would have a two-game lead over the Cowboys and Redskins. And in the Redskins' case, both a two-game lead and they've beaten them twice. I think most people would say, you know, let's jump on, not only jump on the Wentz wagon, but how did the team, just the team looks overall just like mm-hmm. a team. They look mm-hmm. like a winning team. It's not just about Wentz. Okay. It sounds like we have I, I agree with all of that and but and, and the surprising aspect of it. I think we have Neil back. His phone yeah, didn't I'm die. Back. Sorry about that. It sounded like your phone exploded, man. That was more than just a phone dying. Yeah, I don't know what that was. But uh your question about Philadelphia, my uh, power rank has come out Thursday. I have uh, the Eagles one, the Rams two, and then the Chiefs fall into three despite the two losses. So why do you hate the Pats so much? <laughs> Therefore, um, that their defense gives me uh, gives me a lot of concern. I mean, they're they're probably the worst pass defense in the league right now. Um, does that, it matter? Does, does your defense matter if the, no other team can stop you from running down the field? Well, that's the thing, right? I, and and you you look at you you look you know we it's funny we're talking about like basketball and and there's a lot of teams that can keep up offensively because they have to um the patriots are one of those um but yeah i mean i have them fourth could i could easily i probably could you know if this, if this wasn't numbers driven if i was just listing off teams i'd probably have them third uh with new orleans and maybe even minnesota behind them but the way the power rankings for me work it's based on your how well you're playing against the opponent your actual win rate, and then also the opponents that you beat. Right. So how do you think about, I know you've written about the Falcons too as well, um, how do you interpret their you know, pretty good manhandling of the Falcons just this last week, 23-7 to I think was the final score. So is it just what's wrong with the Falcons' offense, or is it maybe the you know, Patriot defense has figured it out? No, I think it's Atlanta is having a lot of problems, especially passing on first down. Last year, uh, Matt Ryan averaged over 10 yards per pass on first down. That essentially meant that if he passed on first down, he got another first down. Um, this year, it's down to he's only averaging about seven yards. Now, that may not seem like a big drop. Seven yards is still good, but if you're not getting as many first downs, you're not getting down the field as as, as efficiently, and you, you're in, you're in more. Um, second and longs and, and those type of things. So I think a lot of their troubles start on first down. And also Matt Ryan hasn't really looked all that accurate as he did last year. Um, so I think it's a little bit of, of defenses 
had more tape and saw what made him successful last year and taken some of that away. But I also think that uh, his passing prowess on first down took a little bit of a hit, and that's causing the uh, the Falcons' offense to to grind to a halt in some instances. When you do your rankings, can you because you 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 interested mentioned one team that I was interested in, which was the Rams. Now the Rams, of course, have great numbers this year. How much weight do you put on priors when you're thinking about the rankings? Well, I I thought a lot about it leading up to this point. Um, there's I have like a pre I had a preseason power ranking. And and then I phase that out over the the first couple of weeks of the season. I mean, if you want to get granular, it's, it's Wharton Moneyball. Um, you know, I, I I know that it takes about six games in the NFL to get a sense of how talented a team is, um, in terms of regressing to the mean and, and things like that. So I, I phase out the the preseason over the by game six. And if you look at the previous power rankings for the Rams, they really weren't getting full credit for how well they were playing because their their preseason expectations weren't great. Um, but now that that it's it's much more focused on what they're doing in the here and now, I, I, they're 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 one of the best teams in in football. Um, now whether they can stay there remains to be seen. But for right now, you know you look at. You know, I said I have them second. You look at some of the other metrics out there, like Football Outsiders' defense value over average, which is also schedule adjusted. They have them number two, 13 best offense, third best defense. I mean, that's a team that's legitimately good and beating good teams. So we'll see how it how it turns out for the remainder of the season. And they're one of the interesting stories, and Goff, of course, is the is the is the counterweight to Wentz being the other quarterback taken at the top of the draft last year. It's going to be interesting to see that play out over time. And you raise a fascinating and critical question for judgment, the role of priors and whether you should be phasing them out. Just to, well, I would argue that, that people don't like to have priors in their models after we hit about the halfway point because it feels wrong, you know, and it's hard to support on, you know, on radio talk shows. But if it, and I, I would push you hard to think about whether you might get more value predictive value by keeping them in a little bit longer so for example you just said we'll see if they can hold you know the, the rams deserve to be th- one of the tops in the in the league because they've done so well we'll see if they can hold priors are going to tell us they're not going to hold that's the role of priors basically to say you know we they've done they've looked fantastic but we're going to temper our expectations we don't expect them to continue to be as good as they have been yeah and and i I try to I, I try to deal with that in two ways. One, I use the Pythagorean win formula, which looks at their um, points scored versus their point allowed to figure yep. out how many games they should win, yep. which gives me a little bit better better idea. Uh, obviously, I look at their record. Um, I look at who they beat, like I said, but I also look at, you know, a team that's five and two. How many wins do we expect them to get? Right. It's I, I don't know if the Rams necessarily are going to win. Um, five out of seven games. That's right. You, you'd always going, expect it to regress back forward, a little bit. But, yep. but a, a team that wins five games out of their first seven averages about nine to ten wins. So yep. I look at all those factors and average it in. Um, so, But, yeah, you know what? You, you may very well be right in terms of uh, – because a lot of the priors are based on um, – like Vegas odds and things like that, like people that that look to to try to assess the the level of the team, um, which has been a good barometer in my mind in, in years past. But yeah, I mean it's it's certainly it's certainly something to think about. Um, and I think you're right. I think the 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 priors are there because you have a season long expectation and. It, 
maybe in the case of Green Bay, where they lost Aaron Rodgers, you you can change that. Right. But um, for others, you might exactly for others, you want to yeah. be a little slow to back off of it. Neil, right. really appreciate you taking the time. Fantastic stuff. We'll definitely have you talk back to talk about these sports, and then I think especially on the hockey front here in a few months, we'd love to hear your thoughts on how that season unfolds. But really That's appreciate. Great. Love it. to do it. You bet. That was Neil Greenberg. Neil is staff writer with the Washington Post. He covers sports analytics for those guys. You can also listen to him on the the WFAN network down there, 106.7. He's got a show called Crash in the Net, Neil Greenberg. That has been three quarters of our show. Come back and join us. After the break, we've still got a quarter to go. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics every Wednesday morning, 8 to 10 Eastern. Kate Massey hosting this morning with my buddy and collaborator, Eric Bradlow. No question what mood Danielle Bruno woke up in this morning. Sound engineer bringing us up out of the bottom of the hour. It's hard not to awake. like Joan Jett and I love rock and roll too. <laughs> well, we were talking about the 1977 World Series earlier. There we go. We? Um, we've got one half hour to go. We've got open lines. You can join us. Jump on. Give us a ring. one 844 Wharton. That's one 844 You can email us businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Also, you can follow us on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall if you want some sports analytics when we're not live, 8 to 10 Eastern. Eric, we've got some football to talk about. I know we've got some games to talk about, but is there anything else flowing around you want to close out before we shift gears? Yeah, I just wanted to close out the World Series. You know, one of the things I noticed uh, before the World Series started, um, the Dodgers were favored to win the World Series. You had about $165 on the Dodgers to win $100. And you might say, okay, well, maybe the Dodgers were the better team. So, you know, just some basic stats. The Dodgers did win 104 games this year. Very impressive. Um, very, very impressive. The Astros, of course, won 101. So, okay. I then, you know, back to what Neil talked about about the Pythagorean. Um, the Astros this year were plus 196. The Dodgers were plus 190. So actually in run differential, the Astros were slightly better. I mean, 196, 190, very similar. What's very interesting to me is how they got there. So the Astros scored 896 runs and gave up 700. The Dodgers scored 770 runs and gave up only 580. So they're both the plus 190, but in some sense, there's literally a shift of yeah. 120. It's towards, remarkable. It, it's, they have the exact same plus minus, essentially, basically, yeah. basically but one's the offensive team yeah. and one's the pitching team. Wow. And as people say, always go with the pitching. But wow. it was surprising to me that the Dodgers were a 165 bet to win 100 yeah, favorite. A little strong. It seemed a little strong. Yeah. Um, you know, now that we're sitting here at one game to love, right. you know, you only have to win three more coins instead of four more coins. Right. Um, you know, that bet's looking good, but I just thought it was interesting how you know, in some sense, you kind of have to use analytics that way. You might say, well, they both won the same. We know wins isn't everything. Then you start to look at like a Pythagorean. You start to look at plus minus. Well, they're about the same. Then you go one level deeper and you say, well, where was it from the runs scored or the runs given up? And that number for the Dodgers, 580 runs given up, is so much lower than any other team in baseball that that caught my eye. How much and- lower? Like, what's the next lowest? I, I, I didn't look, but I'm going to guess 100 runs lower than anybody else. I don't My know gosh. if anybody else gave up less. Maybe 70 or 80 runs less. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. start to say over a season, that's like a half, half, a, half, a, half a, a run a game. game. That's, that's a big, big number, that's... which is why we talked about this just slightly off air. Not that we're supposed to talk about stuff off air. <laughs> but even though Justin Verlander is going for the Astros today, the Dodgers have Rich Hill. Not so bad a number two guy going. Yeah. And... 
the Dodgers are actually favored in the game. You know, part of it could be home field, but Verlander hasn't lost with the Astros, and the Dodgers are still slightly favored in the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wrapping that up, I like the Dodgers in the World Series. I like 580 runs given up over 700. I'll take that all day long. All right. Well, it's a fun time. It's a fun fun time on the baseball front, and um, it's also warming up pretty strongly on the football front. College football, biggest game of the year so far this Saturday, mid-afternoon game. Penn State travels to Ohio State. Penn State's number two in most of the polls. Ohio State, the analytics crowd loves Ohio State, has despite their loss to OU from early in the season. We, Massey Peabody, have Ohio State, the number two team in the country. We've had them a favorite to make the playoff for weeks now. We would make them, they're something like a seven-point favorite. Yeah, six and a half, seven, I've seven seen. Seven-point favorite in the, in the betting markets. We'd make it more like 12. And we, you know, I think Rufus may be busy on Saturday might placing some, a bet on uh, maybe doing something on Saturday in that game. Well, that's just reading the numbers straight off of our of our power rankings. And, in fact, Ohio State got a buy last week. And a buy is worth about half of what home field advantage is worth. And so you want to slide in a little bit more. And maybe that's a little strong. Maybe it's more like a point, three-quarters of a point to a point for a buy. Well, and so you're you're talking about – the analytics suggesting that this game is not going to be as close as it looks like it so should be. So let me ask you: Have in your guys, you know, I don't. Let's. I'll make up a number. Ten years, maybe it's more of doing the Massey Peabody rankings. This is sounding almost like a seven to eight point mispricing. When we take the mat, the straight Massey Peabody line of about nine points, we add on home field, we add on the buy. It should be thirteen, fourteen points potentially. We're at six and a half, seven. I've never in the well, let me say the following: in the three and a half years we've been doing this show together, um, I've never heard you talk about a mispricing as large as that. Is is you that see, a large mispricing? It, it is. You see them much more in college than you do in in uh, in. So that's in not that rare. A no, six a, to that's seven. a strong. That's, we'd, that's we'd, call strong. That a, we'd call that a, a big pick. Um, but let me let me ask you, Eric: is as it's possible that Penn State's broken the model? They we've been looking at them last year. They had a new offensive coordinator. And last year is the year that they kind of surprised everybody. And and so you might say, well, you know, we didn't have priors right. Who knows? It takes a little while for the data to catch up. But now we've been looking at them and this offensive coordinator for more than a season and a half. The data should have caught up by now. So either something's wrong in our model or there's something unique about Penn State. And is it possible that they're, that, that a guy is just sufficiently different? And here's what's interesting. Here's why the hypothesis is is intriguing. They hired their offensive coordinator from from Fordham. They went outside the system. They went outside of the conventional way of coaching and hired a head guy from Fordham to come in and run their offense. And he has had the thing run and spin in really nicely since early on last year. And is it possible? I'm just this is I mean, mostly I don't believe this, but I'm entertaining the possibility that a guy would come in with a system that's sufficiently different, sufficiently outside the norm. That our model's not picking up on it right. That's that is entirely possible. Um, you would also expect your model to catch up on it. You might also expect teams to catch up on the uh, different systems as well. So you might expect that to happen as well. So that could certainly happen. Here's one specific way in which uh, we here, teams talk about explosive plays. You hear this college and pro, right? Explosive plays. Some coaches, I mean, you know, Degum Mac Brown back in the day, he wanted fifteen explosive plays. No, that's too many. Like because an explosive play is something like a, a, something that goes for at least fifteen yards. He said, "We've we've done the, we've run the numbers, and it turns out that teams who have seven explosive plays per game win the game." Well, you know, of course they do. This is like the guys who win the turnover um, battle win right. the game. But the question is, are they predictive? 
Are they are they persistent? Is a team that has looked good with explosive plays in one game gonna, with any statistical reliability, look good in explosive plays the next game? And it turns out the answer is no. The average persistence is quite low. I see. for explosive plays. And so if you want to if you want to say what happened in the game, you'd look at explosive plays. But if you want to say is that team gonna perform good in the fu- future, you don't want to put much weight. On their explosive plays. Turns out... Penn it's a great State, backward-looking predictor, as you're saying, but hard to use as a forward-looking one because the right. team is not persistent in their ability to get them. That's right. And it, here's the thing. Penn State has been outstanding on explosive plays, especially, especially last year. They're just more explosive than most teams. So here's the question. Is that something we should count on persisting or not? We know on average they don't. On average, teams don't persist in their explosiveness. But... You know, maybe there's an outlier. Maybe this offense is is geared up in a way that other offenses aren't that allows them to be more persistently explosive. Well, to me, from a statistical perspective, here's how I'd look at it. You've identified, let's call it an X variable, that is predictive of wins. And let's call them explosive plays. Now we're trying to forecast into the future. So now the question is, can we, I mean, when you do that, to predict the future, you need to predict the X's in the future. Because if X is going to predict Y and you need those X's to predict Y, then you have to predict X in the future. So if this is, your, in my view, this is how, as a statistician, I'm hearing your point. If you can't predict X very well in the future, then saying X predicts Y doesn't help you that much because you can't use that X to predict Y because it's not very predictable. Correct. But now I'm worried because I'm talking no, about no. the average relation between no, no I'm, I'm agreeing with you. So I'm saying we could have a situation here where for Penn State... This is a more predictable X than for other teams. Yeah. You're building the Massey Peabody system not for Penn State, but for a system of teams, not just in the NFL, but in, a, but in the uh, college, etc. So you're right. If Penn State has a more predictable set of Xs and it's not getting as much weight in the Massey Peabody system because overall it can't do that, you've chosen an appropriate loss function for your system, but it doesn't mean it will help predict Penn State necessarily. And this is a general problem in general forecasting. Problem. It's like, is this outlier, is this just an outlier, statistical outlier, or are they a true anomaly and you're therefore going to miss, you're going to miss them? And, and, and we don't have, the, you don't have the parameters to, you don't have enough data to go around fitting that kind of yeah. heterogeneity. Yeah, to me, this game is more of a mandate about, I forget, is, is it McSorley? The, the quarterback for Penn State. Yeah, yeah. This is more of a mandate about him because, you know, I'll always say the following. You, in conceptually, Saquon Barkley, in my view, is an extraordinary player, probably deserves the Heisman, an extraordinary running back. But let's assume uh, Urban Meyer in Ohio State, whether it takes seven men, eight, and maybe it takes 11 men in the box to stop him. The question <laughs> is, how great is the Penn State quarterback? And I came on the show a couple weeks ago. We started talking about this. I'm a huge fan of Penn State's quarterback. So I think we're going to find out not how great Saquon Barkley is, because I think most of us know that. I think we're going to find out how great the quarterback for Penn State, McSorley, is in this game. When you have a great running back and a great quarterback, you've got a chance. Well, they've got a chance. And there's a part of me that even though Massey Peabody would take a big hit, would like to see them get it done because I've had enough Urban Meyer for, I think, one lifetime. And Penn State has a has a very exciting offense to watch, and it'd be fun to watch them for a little longer in the postseason. We, that's on the college side. That's the biggest game of the week and one of the only really big games this week. Why don't we flip over to the NFL? Moneyball matchups. All right, this is the time of the week when we take a look at the NFL slate and ask around the table 
What game are you paying attention to, and is there a side that you want to take against the spread? Eric, what's jumping out at you? Well, very a lot of very interesting games this week, actually. Um, probably the one that caught my eye, there's two that caught my eye this week. One is, you know, the Steelers have been pretty inconsistent this year, and they've been really good. And then they got, I think it was blown out by, I'm say the Jaguars. They got, Jags. Yeah, mm-hmm. Jags. They got blown out. So they're at the Lions this week. Now, the Lions have been kind of an inconsistent team as well. Played a few good games, a few bad games. Um, so I think we're going to find out a lot about the Steelers this week. And also the Lions are historically, I know they're not, I, I'm staring at the screen, not that great or that highly in the Massey Peabody system, but they've been a historically very good home team. It's, you know, they play on turf. Etc. So I'm just, I think it's going to say a lot about how good the Steelers are in this game. Now you have it, I see it here, I'm seeing up on the screen, you have the Steelers as the number two team in the NFL, and you have the Detroit as number 10. So you no, have Detroit's it, 22. 22, sorry, 22. So you have it about a seven and a half, seven, let's call it seven, seven and a half point spread, but the Lions are at home, so it's minus three, so it's a little bit shaded. It's about a point and a half, maybe. You think it should be a four and a half point spread or something like that, and it's more like three. Yeah. I just think we're going to find out a lot about the Steelers in this particular game. So that game caught my eye. And the other one is the Texans at the Seahawks. I don't know what to make of the Seahawks this season. You know, I wanted them dead and buried because um, I'm not a big Pete Carroll fan. And I'm not a big Seahawk fan, um, but you know, people and people seem to love the Rams this season. But you know, all of a sudden, Seattle wins a game. You know, I, Massey Peabody obviously likes Seattle quite a bit, a lot more than they like the not a lot more, but more than they like the Rams. Um, I'm interested to see Texans at Seahawks. So those are the two games. Just from I want to see how good the Steelers are and the Seahawks are, because I know many ranking systems have them as high. Let's see them win these games. Yeah, yeah it's. I think those are great picks to 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 to, to find something to watch this weekend because this is a terrible schedule. What's going on with the NFL? This is crazy. Part of it's because there are no great teams. Everything's kind of in this big mass in the middle. But this is kind of an unfortunate schedule. I mean, come on. So I would have picked the Texans at Seahawks as well. We, we Seattle never drifts very far down our board. It seems like over the last few years, and right now we have them number three. Texans having a pretty solid season and an intriguing season with their new quarterback down there. We, the line is five and a half. We would probably make it more like seven, but that's not a big edge. We like Seattle in that game, but that's not a big edge. Your Steelers Lions game, okay, I'll take the bait on that. Um, I'm gonna, but I, I'm gonna go big on our line isn't as strong as it feels like it ought to be. So Steelers, as you say, we have the number two team in the league, and Detroit. I'm not buying that they're a traditional that they're a great home team, but I don't. We we had a conversation in the first half hour of the show that home field advantage is a little illusory and it's certainly as less persistent than people think it is. That because Detroit Detroit's 22, but there's just not much separation from 22 and say 11. There's just a big mass in the middle, and so that three point line isn't off by much. We'd make it more like a four point line or something like that. But right now, as much as I hate to say it, we believe in the Steelers. Actually, you know, I see another interesting game uh, from the Massey Peabody perspective. Maybe we've talked, maybe I don't think we talked about this one a bit. Maybe the Chargers Patriots, maybe we did talk about that a little bit. But I mean, you have the Patriots at an eight, you have the Chargers at a minus two, so that's a 10 point difference. Add on the home field, it's 13, spread seven and a half. It's an interesting game there. I think the Chargers, it's interesting, I'm glad to see the Massey Peabody system has the Chargers inching up. They're one of those teams you may remember. I think it was three straight games they lost because of their field goal kicker. I mean, they're two and four, but they almost seem like a fairly good two and four. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, 
I'm very interested in that game. I fully expect the Patriots to win that game, but I, you know, I'll be interested to see, like, if as we look back, the Chargers to me seem like I'll call it a slightly undervalued team. Okay. I understand the way that the ratings are. I'm not disagreeing with them. It's just they seem a little bit better strength-wise than the mathematical models to me are giving them. And I understand Massey Peabody's not focusing purely on outcomes in the game, but it seems like their close losses seem to you know have some value to me. Well, they should have a lot of value. And this is a time of year where you kind of should be buying the teams with poor one-loss records and selling teams with high one-loss records because people too, put too much weight on them, especially right now, but considering how things are stacked up in the middle. I mean, if you look at – there was an interesting tweet that we retweeted um, just last night from a, from a guy who ran the numbers and, and uh, analyzed the percentage of teams who are – but, but less than 75% win percentage, but above 25% win percentage. So that like, what? how does the league break down in terms of the tails? And we're at historical lows in the tails, essentially. And I mean, like in the last, I don't know, 15, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull this thing up because we just shot it out last week. But it's a good little graphic that compares the 2017 season to what we've seen over previous years. And they've only got, we've only got one team in the top, with a 75 percentile win per, win percentage and a and only 3 with with a with a 25 percent or low win percentage 28 teams are sitting there in the middle in the middle of 50%. Well that's related I mean I assume it's what you're saying when I said do you believe it we're in week 7 and there's one team the yeah. Eagles that are 6 and 1 by that by definition by the way 5 and 2 is well, conveniently for this metric and the way you've sliced yeah, it that's yeah. 0.714 yeah, yeah. so it's not quite there but that is impressive to me that there are only there's only one team at the top end. The bottom end is kind of interesting to me because, you know, some teams have, um, you know, I think four or five weeks ago when Shane and I kicked off the season and we were talking about, man, there really are some really putrid teams. Well, some of those putrid teams seem to have won some games. And so I was predicting there was going to be five or six really awful teams. And there really aren't that's, that's five right. or six right. really awful and, teams. And that it's the lowest. It's the lowest percentage in the tails that this guy ran and and you go back you go back 15 years to find something even close we've only got a little bit of time left let's take a quick look around the the projections uh in massey peabody every week we kick out the expected ones win a loss record for each team and therefore who's gonna make the playoffs that kind of thing and just looking at these numbers they're fresh out of the oven after last after monday night's game who do we see coming out of the nfc eric who do we see making the Super Bowl, 24% likely to be Philadelphia. So they're the favorite out of the NFC. Seattle's right on their heels. Seattle made a gain this week. They're up to 21%. And then the teams we expect to win the other two divisions, Minnesota and New Orleans, both sitting at about half that, looking at 11%. So about equal odds for Philadelphia and Seattle to make it out of the NFC and half the odds for um, Minnesota and New Orleans. On the AFC, Eric, you want to take a pass at that? What are you seeing? Yeah, I mean, well, you know, Someone's going to have to, you know, if you had told me two weeks ago, I would have said Kansas City. I would have said Kansas City has a great shot. They had a, at that point, they had a one-game lead on New England and the tiebreaker over New England. I was thinking, if the game's in Kansas City, Kansas City looks good. Now I'm not as confident. You know, I got to put most of my mass, I'm putting it on New England. 
In Pittsburgh, we like Pittsburgh. Again, I kind of hate it, but they did beat Kansas City in the head-to-head. We have them slightly favored over Kansas City to make the Super Bowl out of the AFC. But again, New England as the What's as interesting strong, is just how much mass favorite. is on New England and Pittsburgh and how much is on Philadelphia and Seattle. Well, let's hope the Eagles do it. That has been another show, another two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball. Many thanks to you guys for joining us. For Cade, Eric, Danielle, Matt, we'll be back next week. Between now and then, enjoy your sports.